Hello, everyone. I'm Anthony Skinner. You recording yet, Nate? Or do I need to start over? We're good. Okay. So I'm Anthony Skinner, and um, yeah, we'll be going through a, another parable tonight. Um, so I'll just start out. We are, where are we? So we're in Luke 16, so if you guys want to turn there. And so we're at least positive that we're in the last year and a half, because as of right now, Jesus' disciples are called apostles. And we can probably even speculate that we may even be the final months, if not weeks, of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and it has been uh, said multiple times now that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, meaning that Christ is deliberately putting himself in harm's way, and at this point, the cross is rapidly approaching. The popularity of Jesus is reaching a fever pitch and multitudes are clamoring over one another just to even get to see this man. Jesus has had, uh, had to get, in a, get into a boat at one point in order that he might not even be trampled. And in fact, his popularity is so huge that after the feeding of the 5,000, they even try to crown him as king. But there's always a flip side to these things, though, isn't there? The Pharisees have become so hostile at this point, and it's reasonably so, because Jesus has railed against the religious system again and again. They had taken the law of God and so completely twisted it that it was beyond recognition. And so Jesus, in response to the deliberate twisting of God's word, hits the Pharisees again and again with the, with the parables that drive right at the heart of their legalistic system. Before, in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke extremely directly and honestly quite plainly. But now, he speaks in parables. That was the big picture. Now we're going to focus in a little bit more on the immediate context. Our parable takes place in Luke 16, like I said. And if you aren't there, please turn there. Uh, and it seems to play, take place within one of the uh, Pharisee rulers' houses after Jesus, had, has, uh, after Jesus was invited to come and dine with them. The meal is over, and Jesus has begun, began teaching and the crowds are right outside the door. <laughs> These crowds, they, they're just following him everywhere. And even inside a, a, a religious leader's house, they're, they're just right there, pressing in. And so Jesus, with everyone's attention, very pointedly and with accuracy, with that of a surgical knife, hones in again on the hearts of all those who are listening. Let's start. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man, and I'll be reading out of the ESV. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, uh, uh, and send Lazarus, oh man, I lost my pot. Okay, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus, in a like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So starting out in verse 19, we, see the, we just see uh, that, man, the, these people would have just seen, oh, here is our hero. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. This is the star. Man, Jesus must be introducing this man because he had divine favor. But they were sadly wrong. This is just going to be a fulfillment of James 5.1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For the miseries that are coming upon you. And so this man is rich. This word carries the idea of immense riches. So already, this, we see that this man is loaded. He may very well had an abundance of land, gold, and silver. And then we also see that he was clothed in fine purple and fine linens. The purple dye was our was harvested, the purple that, comes, that was in the clothing was harvested from shellfish, which made it extremely hard to get and was it extremely expensive as well. And so only the royalty, so only royalty and the wealthy would actually have this purple. And he also had it, it was made out of fine linen. It was the finest wool that money could buy these days. And the process that would, uh, that would take, that would take to make such fine garments would take days and days to complete and so we could say that this man was wearing the, the Calvin Klein of clothes those days. You know, it's, and so then this, uh, it says that he also feasted sumptuously every day. And so there was never a time that this man was in want or in need. And we also see that this was an everyday event. This wasn't just Sunday. This doesn't was, wasn't some holiday. It was just every day, in and out. It was rare for even people to have one of these garments let alone every day being able to wear a different dress. So we see he had, he ate, he dressed lavishly every single day. And going on it says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. And so this guy even has a gate in his possession, which very well could mean that he had a mansion or a palace of some sort. And of all things, he had a beggar laid at his gate. You know, beggars weren't just laid anywhere. They were laid in public places, which means that this gate, it was busy. This was a busy gate. This man was constantly having either people pass by or come through his gate to his mansion. So we could say he was even Mr. Popular. So he had it all. He had land, money, friends, everything his heart desired. He was, could have been known as the who's who of the day. And the mindset would have said, of the day would have said that this man had divine favor and that he was blessed by God. Verse 20. And the poor man's name was Lazarus, 
not too, nothing too significant about Lazarus. Uh, this is not the same Lazarus as mentioned in John 11. Uh, his name does mean God has helped, which possibly could suggest that he was just even a believer, and that's what Jesus is trying to bring out. But he's the only beggar that Jesus ever names, which uh, some scholars even think that this uh, makes it more of a real story than a parable. But in either, in either way, uh, Jesus does teach it in a parable fashion. And so this man named Lazarus, it says he was covered with sores. Now this mean, could possibly mean that Lazarus had leprosy. And if Lazarus had leprosy, it would have these outside symptoms of just like oozing pus, lesions, boils on your skin. It just, it was disgusting. And the symptoms on the inside of, of his body would have been a severe numbing. And so contrary to popular belief, uh, the parts that we see on leprous people, uh, they don't actually fall, fall off. They're actually rubbed off because of their, they're so numb. This was actually the same ailment that uh, struck Job. His friends said that God had actually cursed him with this. He must have sinned, therefore God gave him this leprosy of some. And so the same mentality even comes up to this day within this society. Since the time of Job to the time of Jesus, and even still many cultures today, leprosy is seen as a curse from God. And so even Jesus' disciples, we see, if someone had an ailment of some sort, they said, they said in John 9 of the, the paralytic man, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he desired to be fed with even what fell from the rich man's table. This is even the, the crumbs. This man desired even the crumbs from the table. Uh, the, the crumbs talked about here are actually dried bread crumbs. Or the, the scraps would, that would have came from the table would have been dried bread crumbs. Um, because uh, the, the, what they, instead of having napkins, they would have used dried bread to clean their hands after a meal. And so this man even desired to be fed with these dirty, dried bread crumbs. Can you feel this man's pain yet? And then it goes on to say, moreover, don't miss that, moreover, he's like, if you didn't think that was bad enough, listen in. If the Jewish believers had not, the Jewish believers that had not, uh, did not think that this man was cursed by God, they would have by now. Because it says, for even the dogs came and licked this man's sores. If you were to own these dogs, you probably would not call them fluffy. Let's just say that. These dogs were a majority wolf and had previous years moved into the city and were, known, uh, were, were notoriously known for eating trash and, le- uh, and, le- oh, and leftovers. And it was, so it was very, say, very fair to say that they were violent and quite offensive to the Jewish culture. In fact, all throughout scripture, we see them uh, insulting their enemies, calling them dogs Outside the city are the dogs. And so, picking up back in uh, verse 22, it says, The, the poor man died and was carried by, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And so both these men, regardless of their circumstances, met the ultimate statistic. Hebrews even says that it is appointed unto man to die once, regardless of how good they are or how evil they are. 
You only get one life, and then it's over. And so it's one life. How will you guys use it? And so he was carried by the angels. According to Matthew 13, angels are the one who reaps souls. And so once again, whether someone has done good or evil, so it's not just believers, but also even unbelievers, are taken by angels. They're taken to a final judgment where God ultimately does the separating of the wheat and the tares, the goats and the sheep. But this man, where is he taken? To Abraham's side. So where is Abraham's side? Where is it talked about in Scripture? It's actually talked about in multiple places. It's implicit and, very, it's implicit and also explicit. Matthew 8.11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so where are they reclining? They're reclining at the great heavenly banquet. And guess who's at the highest, one of the highest places of honor? Lazarus. He who was the very least had now become the greatest. And he was sitting in the very bosom of Abraham, which was reserved only for the most intimate of disciples, as we see even with John and Jesus. John was reclining in the che- on the chest of Jesus. But what has become of our rich man at this point? He who was the very most richest of the rich, the most popular of them all. Let me read verse 22 again. The poor man died and was carried by, by, by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This would have been the shell shocker of this parable. This is what would have made every jaw in the room drop. He was supposed to be uh, blessed by God, this rich man. How could he have ended up here? He had everything. God had to love him. This is not the way this story should have gone. He should have ended up in heaven. Lazarus should be in hell right now. Because he was the one that was cursed by God. He is the one that had boils. However, God never said this, did he? This was man's standard that he was trying to use to justify his idolatry of money and worship of God. So how does God view this? Jesus actually addresses it earlier in this chapter, up in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This phrase, lovers of money, is also translated in the KJV as covetous, meaning that they had a lust of money that, overwhel- that was overwhelming control on, tr- controlling on them. In fact, it was so controlling on them, Luke 20, 47, actually says that they devoured widows' homes for a pretense of long prayers. They took everything and anything they could get their greedy little hands on. And in return, what would they give? A prayer, a blessing that would never come. Their filthy greed is what Jesus is trying to drive at and expose. Their supposed gospel of richness equating to salvation is only damnable. We even see them in Luke 21, the beginning. They even take the last two coins of a poor widow 
for the glory of God. They loved so money, or they loved money, simply put. And so verse 15 goes on to say, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So brothers, I just can tell you to take this as a, a warning. You cannot serve both God and money, for you will either love one and hate the other, or hate one and love the other. And so picking up back in verse 23, what was this torment like? It says he's in torment. Well, it's God's wrath being poured out day and night for all eternity. There is no party in hell. Let me just tell you that straight up. I've heard that way too many times. There's no celebration, only pain and misery. Complete and utter separation from anyone and anything that would bring comfort. It's so exceedingly excruciating and painful that even the inside of Lazarus' body is in pain. He says, he even asks, uh, demands that Lazarus, or not Lazarus, the rich man's body is in pain, uh, that he demands Lazarus to dip his tip of his finger and put it on his tongue. This is not a pretty sight. And so we see this man in, uh, start to search. He starts seeing them search around. And finally, he lifts up his eyes. He sees the circumstances and he feels the agony. And he, he frantically looks around. And who does he see? Abraham. And the very man who was outside his palace begging for even a scrap of food, seated at the feast in heaven. Lazarus was supposed to be cursed by God, but he ended up in Abraham's bosom. And so verse 24, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger, or dip the end of his finger, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so he calls him Father. This is more of a physical lineage rather than a spiritual. So more than likely we would just say that this man was just an Israelite or a Jew. And he says, have mercy on me. Maybe he's showing signs of true repentance here. I mean, maybe he's coming around. He says, have mercy. Wrong. The very next thing he does is what? says, send Lazarus. What is he doing? He's demanding Abraham to send Lazarus. This is the biggest thing that proves, this is one of the biggest things we can take away from this parable, that proves that even in the fiery judgment, people will not change their minds. He still feels entitled, and he thinks he deserves to be treated with kindness after even an entire lifetime of rebellion towards God. And so this is the hardest truth we can, this is the hardest truth we can learn from this, even too. He didn't even expect to end up here. Many will not expect to end up in hell. They'll think they're going to heaven. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in a like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So this man did receive good things. This man was blessed by God, and had any and every material good he wanted and had the slightest desire for. But ultimately, this man's blessing had become his cursing. 
Job 21, 13, and 14 say, They spend their days in wealth in a moment they go down to the grave. Therefore, they, the rich, say unto God, Depart from us, we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. When money and riches has become your God, this life is the closest thing you will ever get to heaven. Luke 6.24 says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. God may bless you abundantly or with very little, but in either case, He is calling you to Himself. This rich man had every opportunity to repent, but he wasted it. Lazarus had only a little opportunity, especially being an outcast, but you know what? He took it. God may give you a thousand times to repent, but if you a thousand times reject him, he'll give you exactly what you want, which is an eternity with or without him. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so there's this great chasm that exists between heaven and hell. Even the word great, we can see, it's a, the Greek word is mega. And we know what mega means. It's huge. It's enormous. It's immense. It's tremendously. It's, this chasm is beyond our mind's capability to understand. And, say, and it also says this chasm is fixed. It is set in stone and is completely and totally final. There is no going back. There, it is irreversible. Even after years and years, the distance will neither grow nor shrink. And wherever you end up in eternity, you are locked in and can never go anywhere else. When God delivers justice, it is swift, accurate, true, and permanent. He does not change his mind even in the midst of your punishment. Why? Because he got it right the first time. Furthermore, even you would not change your mind in hell. For Revelation 21.11 says, Let the evil evildoer do, still do evil, and the filthy be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. After you step from this life to the next, there is no going back. And so what Abraham is saying is that even if Lazarus could dip the tip of his finger in this water, he would never even get to this rich man because this gap, you cannot cross it. Verses 27 and 28. And he said to them, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So even after hearing about the finality of hell, this man, or yeah, even after hearing about the finality of hell, this man begins to understand that this torment he's going through, man, it, it isn't going to last just for a moment where a, just a splash of water on his tongue would quench it, but it's going to last for the rest of eternity. Reality starts to sink in on this man. And so what's he do? He starts to beg. He starts to plead with Abraham. Abraham, send Lazarus, send Lazarus to send him to my family. We see that this man loved his family. 
He was a well-meaning guy. And we even see in verse 30 that this man is even a religious man because he even knows what repentance is. And that's the scariest thing of all, though, isn't it? The majority of people that end up in hell are well-meaning, religious people who have trusted more in themselves rather than on Christ. And so he says again, send Lazarus. Once again, we see this man has not repented of his sin, even after hearing about the final judgment. Verse 29, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets, what does this mean? What, what is he saying here? This is the law. Verse 16 actually says, uh, rephrases it as a, almost a parallel. It says the law and the prophets. This is the Old Testament scriptures and the Bible at this time. And so simply he says, your siblings have the Bible. Let them read it. In verse 30 he, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham, you don't understand. If my siblings were to see a miracle of some sort, they would be saved. Does that that not sound like our generation? Man, you hear about a man who says, Oh God, if you'd only heal my my brother, he's dying. then, Then I would believe you. Then what? A, the brother dies and he gives more credit to modern science, or though not the brother is healed, and he gives more credit to modern science than to God. Or B, his brother dies, and the person curses God and never comes to know him. Or in another case, we even see miracles become magic shows. In John 6, we see that there's thousands of people, 5,000 it says, but more likely even fifteen to 20,000, thousands of people are seeing this Happen, bread just multiplying, fish multiplying. And at the end of it, Jesus gives a hard saying. And it says, we cannot handle this. And so they left. And how many are left out of that 5,000 or 20,000? 12. And even even out of those, only 11 11 of them were even, uh, only 11 of them were actually believers. One of them was a devil. And so, verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. This is the second time that Abraham has mentioned Moses and the prophets. If if this ever happens where you guys see that, man, something's mentioned twice in a row, Man, pay attention. Whenever Scripture mentions this, it's probably pretty important. So why is Abraham emphasizing the Bible so hard? I mean, why not miracles? It's because Abraham knows that it's through the hearing of God's word that people are saved. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God's word is the only thing that can save. 
you know what, and I'm not ashamed of it. And I hope you guys aren't. For many, it would bring shame. Because what do they do? They, they say, oh, we need apologetics. Oh, we need to, we need to tell them that, man, like, there, there's a creator. And, like, man, we need to give them evidence, you know. Like, uh, we've got to back it up with historical, contextual. I mean, or the, what else did they say? They're like, oh, we need to have a rock star do this. We need a rock star to present Jesus. And then people will come to know Jesus. What's the word say? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the soul and spirit of joints and a marrow, discerning even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is even powerful enough to save through the average person. Which means you and I. You don't have to beg people in heaven. God's word will do it for you. So when you guys are witnessing, man, show them the word. So this makes us all equally accountable because God's word will do it. It's not on us. You guys just need to present it. So coming to the end, it says, that's why, or that's, or it actually doesn't say anymore. I'm just looking at my notes. That's why Abraham could rely on the word so hard rather than on someone raising from the dead. Because seeing a miracle could never save anyone. You need to hear and respond to the word. Our story involved two men. One had every opportunity in the world to come to God humbly, but rejected him. And the other had very little opportunity, but threw himself on the Lord. Both heard the word. Both knew what repentance was, but only one ended up at the heavenly banquet. And so what will you guys do with the word of God? Will you take it at its word? For an unbeliever, will, will you, because it commands you to repent and believe, will you take God at his word and will you repent or will you reject him? And the same thing goes with the believer, man. Will, will you take God at his word? Will you obey him obediently, listening, listening to everything? And obeying every single step he says to do. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you and just reverence and, and humility, God, just seeing that your word is sufficient to save. God, it is your word that gives life. Lord, I just pray for any unbelievers here, God, that they would throw themselves on you. Lord, could we see an eternity without you as sheer and utter torment? But God, with you, though, we have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. God, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for and I just pray, God, even just for fellowship after this. God, may it just be glorifying to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.